You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Welcome. I'm Ken Fisher, the New York office of Cozen O'Connor. With me today are Stuart Shorenstein, the chair of our New York government relations practice, the practice group leader, Katie Schwab, and Rose Christ, one of the principals in the New York government relations practice for Cozen O'Connor. They say about New York politics the same thing as they say about the weather in Seattle. If you don't like it, wait a half an hour and it'll change. I can't think of a more dramatic change that's happened um, in New York politics uh, than this year when our governor, Andrew Cuomo, went from being a hero to being a zero, um, facing all sorts of allegations, investigations, and yet still a majority of the voters in New York want him to continue as governor. Stuart, what's going on? Well, there is an awful lot going on. And I think at the at the bottom line, no one should sell Andrew Cuomo short. Uh, he is a fighter and uh, determined uh, to remain in office. But the problems that have surrounded him are serious and uh, and are the kind of problems that have taken others uh, down in in other circumstances. So what has happened is that, uh, as you said, a year ago, the spotlight was on uh, Governor Cuomo. He filled a void uh, in terms of leadership during the onset of the pandemic, uh, a void created by the absence of leadership at the federal level, and the significant uh, um, impact that the, that the uh, pandemic had on New York in particular, as people were coming from Europe and spreading the, uh, uh, the virus. Uh, his uh, daily briefings became must-see TV. Uh, he, um, he provided a, a role model in terms of how to present uh, factual data and, and uh, explain uh, the actions that were being taken. And as you said, he became a national hero at, in a time in the country when we have few national heroes. And uh, his, uh, he won an Emmy Award. Uh, he had a book published. And he was riding high as people last spring thought maybe uh, he should be the one to become the uh, presidential challenger to... Uh, to then President Donald Trump instead of uh, uh, Biden. Uh, The the dam broke. You know, it seems like from the coverage that everyone was afraid of Andrew Cuomo, and then one day nobody was. And allegations are are being made, um, some of them more serious than than others. But it's not just in connection with uh, sexual harassment claims or retaliation claims by his staff. It seems like almost every one of his strengths is being turned into a weakness. The legislature um, that work with him to pass important legislation, get on-time budgets, um, now resents the power he has. His um, work uh, on the COVID emergency under investigation by the federal government as to whether they 
uh, cooked the books when it came to nursing home deaths, and even the um, single uh, most important infrastructure project that the state has completed in many years, the Mario Cuomo Bridge, uh, which uh, over the Hudson River, which he was intimately involved with, now under investigation for shoddy uh, construction practices. Is, is this because it, it's just a confluence of events, or was the Cuomo was the Cuomo persona always a sham? Uh, no, I don't think it was always the sham, but, you know, he is a three-term governor looking for a fourth term, which would place him in history and place him above uh, the record of his father, which uh, to whom he uh, idolizes. Uh, he took uh, incredibly um, unilateral powers uh, under, under his um, uh, direction. Uh, from the legislature in combating the virus, and the legislature felt that its role was far too diminished. Uh, you had a new legislature come into uh, office uh, just before the pandemic with many, many progressives who do not share the, the, uh, the political uh, agenda of the governor, and we're looking for ways to diminish that power and to diminish him, and did not want to see him run for a fourth term. So the political uh, aspects of of uh, of his reign were under attack, uh, uh, perhaps more subtly. Uh, but once the opening came, uh, the dam broke, and and that is exactly as you recounted. It started uh, with uh, with a uh, uh, an allegation by Lindsey Boylan in December of uh, harassment and hostile workplace. Uh, it then followed by uh, a report by the Attorney General in January, a kind of surprise report. Uh, I think everyone was blindsided by it that the uh, way that nursing home deaths were counted. Uh, were were not uh, consistent with how they should have been counted. That's the allegation and what the investigation is. And and then then the the series of allegations uh, from other women uh, who worked for uh, the governor and including now one who still works for the governor have uh, created an atmosphere that the governor's office is not what the public thought it would be. And investigations have mounted on investigations. No so what does this mean in terms of what the legislature and the governor have to do? There are important issues facing the state, not just COVID, but certainly that's predominant. Economic recovery, um, equity issues, criminal justice reform, uh, and a budget that's due uh, by the end of, uh, by, the, by the beginning of April. Is, is Albany functioning? Can Cuomo get anything done right now? I, I, think what, I was just going to say, I think what the governor is finding and, and why these charges are coming down so hard right now is that he has, by virtue of his personality, I think, and his style has tried to create this air of invincibility around him. And it let him be very effective, especially in a crisis environment where people were desperately looking for leadership. But, you know, when you alienate so many people, 
by virtue of being such a strong hand and, and not someone who necessarily builds bridges to your opponents or to even anyone who disagrees with you. When something goes wrong, you, you find yourself in an awkward position. So I think, I think what's happening are a difficult, challenging position. I think what's, what we're starting to see, you know, with the governor, for example, reaching out to the black community is he's going to need to use some different strategies than he's used over the past years to make the whole machinery of state government work for himself. It can't be just the governor's show. How does he get a budget done? We're in this unique situation where tax revenues have been completely clobbered by the economic dislocation brought on by COVID. Wall, Wall Street and uh, more affluent uh, New Yorkers did okay. Now there's a huge infusion of funds coming to the state uh, through uh, uh, the efforts of Joe Biden and, and our Senator Chuck Schumer. Um, so it's a little bit schizophrenic in terms of assessing um, what the financial condition of the state is. How does he get a budget done? Well, it's complicated because the assembly, it's, it's a three-way budget at this point. The uh, Senate and the House and the assembly each submitted their one-house budgets. What, what does that um, mean, Stuart? The, the governor proposes an executive budget in January, which he did, amends it in February, which he did, which contains tax revenues, it contains expenditures, and it, it is a, every aspect is covered by the budget. The assembly and the Senate then submit their independent one, one house budgets, uh, which they did last week on time. And for an on-time budget, and ever since the governor has been the governor, we've had an on-time budget on April 1st, which is when the fiscal year uh, begins. Uh, uh, an on-time budget is then negotiated in the next two weeks, generally by the staffs getting in rooms together, and then the three leaders, the majority leader, the, uh, the speaker of the assembly, and the governor getting in a room together to, um, to and what happens to if they can't agree? Now, uh, if they can't agree, uh, the the budget uh, it, it leaves the governor with greater powers in terms of putting a budget in place until an agreement is reached. Back in the Pataki years, sometimes the budget wasn't reached for a hundred days. So it isn't that the world falls off a cliff. It's just that the functioning of government, which has um, been one of uh, the governor's uh, strengths that it, that he he has the trains running on time uh, would would fall off and that would not provide for the kind of um, uh, leadership and, and 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 the kind of direction that the state needs at a point in crisis when uh, when when we have such tremendous problems caused by the pandemic as we are trying to reopen uh, the economy. Yeah, Albany's always had a reputation as being Sin City, but now it, this could interfere with being able to legalize marijuana and bring casino gambling to New York. Yes, it, it could. And uh, But on the other hand, most people expect that they will reach an agreement. It's awkward because the Assembly has an impeachment proceeding underway uh, in its Judiciary Committee. Uh, the uh, The Senate Majority Leader has called upon the governor to resign, uh, as as the speaker. Uh, others have said that um, uh, he shouldn't resign until the investigations are complete, which is 
uh, the governor's position. And so you have a very awkward situation in Albany as to the three people needing to get in a room, but not trusting each other and, and each having a separate agenda, especially pushed by the progressive members of each of their delegations. And each of them having a gun to the other's head, although it's not clear at this point how many bullets are in Andrew Cuomo's chamber. Right. Re uh, reports are that, that they are reaching a separate agreement on marijuana, uh, or at least they've been extremely close to reaching that agreement. And I think that while the governor traditionally has tremendous leverage in negotiating a budget with the, uh, with the legislature, uh, that leverage may be tilting some because uh, there is a desire to show that despite all the problems, the government is functioning and, and the governor is governing. And so I think there is a desire to get an on-time budget. Katie Schwab, uh, speaking of awkward, um, one of the people who is no longer afraid of the big bad wolf is the mayor of the city of New York, Bill de Blasio. His relationship with Andrew Cuomo, for whom he worked in the, uh, in the Clinton administration, has been uh, awkward is a, is, a, is a light description yes. of it, hostile is a uh, is a more uh, accurate one, particularly as they've had different approaches to dealing with COVID and trying to, to point fingers at each other. So all of a sudden, Bill de Blasio doesn't look as lame as he did when New Yorkers were, were cheering um, the governor uh, bigfooting him. Well, he may be slightly empowered by the relative weakness of the governor. I do think the mayor has his own problems here in the city related to the continuing issues with um, the popularity of defunding the police and management of the city's budget overall. And, um, you know, it's been a long seven years and the mayor is going to have a hard time, digging, you know, blaming just the governor for those kinds of problems, I think. Um, but. Yeah, go ahead, Rose. One thing the mayor's got going for him, though, is that he's pushing really hard to have complete control over the federal um, bailout money that's coming to the city. So, you know, traditionally the money would flow from the state to the city, which would give Cuomo an opportunity to, again, you know, in your words, bigfoot the mayor, right? But if the mayor is able to assume control and there's been some support for that from Schumer, it would give him a pretty nice pool of cash to be able to dole out to backfill programs that were cut and also to fund a couple new pet projects on his way out the door. So um, that might be a way for him to sort of put a little bit more juice in it right before the end of his term. You know, there's a lot of uh, conflicting anecdotes, I'll call them, about how New York is, is doing. We lost um, hundreds of thousands of jobs, particularly service workers, uh, industries like tourism and hospitality. It's going to take a while for the vaccines to be accepted before and the pandemic to end before that comes back. On the same, by the same token, at the at, at this point a year ago, uh, as things were starting to shut down, people were afraid that we were going to go back to the lawless days of the 1970s. There were periodic reports about homelessness uh, uh, spiking, mostly because de Blasio was opening up some new shelter hotels to get people out of. The, uh, uh, the big shelters for the cause of the pandemic. Shootings were up. Reports of <coughs> affluent people uh, leaving for the suburbs and, and other states. But at the end of the day, the city doesn't seem to be that much different than it was a year ago as it, as it starts to repopulate. So, Katie, 
what do the people inside City Hall think is happening? Do, does the people in the city council think we're in crisis, or do they think that that things are 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 just fine? You know, ironically, I think a lot of people aren't in City Hall, right? I mean, city government hasn't returned to in in person work any more than any of the other kind of white collar professionals, and so I think that you get the same kind of mixed impressions that you get in any other industry where people experience what's in the location where they spend most of their time. And I've heard and, and seen several people use the kind of metaphor of a barbell, you know, to explain they're really a lot of people clustered in the very, very poor and under tremendous hardship because of COVID. And then other people are thriving and doing very, very well because their work was easily translatable and perhaps even grew in this period. And then the middles, there's not that much in the kind of middle where we used to have maybe more strength in our economy and those tourism jobs or hospitality jobs. So I think it's, um, it, it does, just depends on who you talk to as to what their perspective is. And I think we're seeing this in the campaign messages, too, of the candidates, that there's a lot of interest um, in delivering services to the very, very poor who need it the most. Um, but I don't, I haven't heard as much about really addressing the return of how do we kind of reestablish that middle class. And it just seems to me that it's critically important to the future of the city. So Bill de Blasio is a lame duck. He will be out of office at the end of this year. Um, as will uh, a number of, of, of other elected officials. I want you to talk about that, but I also particularly want you to talk about the dynamic where de Blasio will be will be leaving uh, City Hall. Corey Johnson, the Speaker of the City Council, um, who is term limited, was planning on running for mayor and is now running for city controller uh, uh, instead. Uh, they have to get a budget done. They have legislative priorities. What does term limits mean in terms of the rest of the legislative year in City Hall? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a fascinating. Like, I thought at first when Corey stepped down, he said he's not running for mayor anymore, that it was just going to be kind of like dragging it out for this last year. But now that he's got his eyes set on Comptroller, and in fact, he's, you know, running against one of his colleagues in the council, Brad Lander, for this seat. I think it's going to just be a competition to see who can pass the most progressive, left-leaning, you know, uh, legislation possible. How quickly can they push it through before the end of the term? I don't know that we see that much new coming out of the mayor's office, right? I mean, I think at this point he's going to be rubber stamping what comes out of the council. Um, but I, I do think that we're going to see just if we thought the legislation was moving fast before, if we thought the legislation was pushing to the left before, like buckle up, I think the next the next couple months are going to be um, a rough ride for some business interests. And um, and to Katie's point, you know, I'm not sure what that means about jobs coming back to the city, especially for the middle class. We already see industries talking about leaving. JetBlue says they're contemplating moving their headquarters out of Long Island City to Florida, right? Like I think that's just one anecdotal example, but I think that it's indicative of a larger trend. We're going to see businesses reevaluating their work in the city as we come back from COVID, and I, I don't think it's going to be pretty. You know, been so I think, I'm sorry, go ahead, Stuart. And, and I think that people are also going to reevaluate uh, their um, uh, their remote working. Uh, right now, offices, uh, whether it's downtown or in Midtown, are largely vacant. Uh, the, uh, the the offices may be rented by businesses, but the employees haven't come back. And and uh, hopefully, as more people get vaccinated, 
Uh, they will, but I think there may be some fundamental changes, particularly in urban areas where transportation uh, and commuting takes so long that uh, there will be uh, fundamental workplace changes going forward too that will impact the economy of the cities. There have been several references to the uh, progressive mood, progressive wind sweeping through politics reflected at um, City Hall and in uh, the legislature as well. But the polling data on what New Yorkers seem to be looking for in government doesn't necessarily tie out uh, to that. And, you know, it's interesting, AOC took out an important Queens politician, became a national star, but her influence on Congress is somewhat limited because the margin between Democrats and Republicans is so thin that the moderate uh, center has to be protected by Nancy Pelosi. We don't have that consideration. The Republican Party in New York just isn't isn't that strong. There isn't an ideological conservative wing to the Democratic Party. But but my question is, do we think that the progressive movement is is punching above its weight? In other words, are they are they just better organized than some of the other um, uh, forces in the city? Organized labor, for example. Um, is it still a reaction to the Bloomberg years where it seemed like the elites uh, got the major share? Why, why is the progressive movement dominating the political discussion in New York? I, I have an opinion about that. I mean, I believe, first of all, I believe the progressive movement and organized labor are, are closely allied on, on an awful lot of issues. So it's certainly that alliance has amplified their voice very much. I also think that the past year when we haven't been able to convene public hearings or any other sorts of, you know, kind of public meetings in person that the um, fluency with which they use social media has really given them quite a lot of power and access to the press. And we've seen just an increased um, importance of social media and Twitter in particular in, say, legislative decisions. And so it's been, um, for the business community in particular, a source of frustration that legislative decisions seem to get decided on the basis of who's won the Twitter war rather than perhaps what might be a more thoughtful analysis of what the impacts of a proposal might be. So I do think that those two factors have made the um, progressive politics more um, influential. And I also think going forward that um, it seems that the uh, DSA, for example, the Democratic Socialists of America have been quite selective and smart in identifying a handful of candidates for the city council races and that this will give them, um, assuming that they're successful, this will give them a very, very uh, well-coordinated voice and a strong enough kind of group to be pretty influential in the next council as well. I want to throw one more factor out, which is that the headwinds of the progressive movement were sailed predominantly on economic grounds by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, they were not known for championing race issues. They were known for championing class issues. Um, but with the Black Lives Matter movement becoming internalized by so many people, um, I think that the, the, the left has now merged those two uh, doctrines and play one off against the other. Uh, and, you know, with the encouragement of, of Bill de Blasio and many of the other leaders in the city, but I do think that the Black Lives Matter movement changed the perception of a lot of white voters about the power structure in the city and what was fair. 
Yeah. And one, one other thing I would say that COVID has aided in this because there are now, I think, people who are otherwise occupied by going, especially at the height of the pandemic, by going into work, right, who now had time either by virtue of being laid off or furloughed or doing remote work in some cases where they were able to take it to the streets. They're able to dedicate a considerable amount of more time to their activism, right? And I think that it's really, it's brought a lot of people into the fray of politics and into activism that otherwise were maybe sitting on the sidelines, right? And so I think that it's not only now it's like a theoretical movement, but I do think that there are a growing number of individuals actually behind this sort of progressive shift um, and out there vocally expressing it in a way that's very much in your face and you can't avoid it. These are the people who are willing to show up and be in the streets and yell at the elected officials, right? We're not seeing that from the moderate New Yorkers, right? They're, and they're not doing it online as much and they're not doing certainly not doing it in person. So I, I think that's a big piece of it. Is there a generational shift also? Oh, for sure, right? I mean, it's, it's also a generational shift. It's people, and it's amazing how young some of the activists are, right? But they're a voting age. They're super engaged. They're signing their friends up. They're using TikTok. They're using Instagram. They're using Twitter. They're using brand new app that was just launched called Clubhouse, which has an amazing amount of traction. And they're all having these really interesting and animated debates about city politics in a way that I had not previously seen, even, even when I was more part of the youthful conversations, right? And so... Um, it's, it's been interesting to watch, and I think it'll only continue to grow, really. So what does this mean for the mayor's race? We have an interesting situation. Term limits, de Blasio's out, lower uh, requirements to get on the ballot uh, because of COVID and general trends, a very generous uh, public finance system that is going to uh, provide millions of dollars of support for many of the candidates, and for the first time, something called ranked choice voting, where voters get to say who their second, third, fourth choices are. And if no one gets 50% of the vote, then the person at the bottom has their second choice votes distributed uh, to the top. That's a wild card. I think most people don't really know how it's going to play out. But just in general, take those factors that you all have been talking about now and tell me which mayoral candidates have benefited from these these shifts in the last year and which ones have been hurt? Well, I think clearly there's a, uh, a benefit from coming from the outside to say, I'm not part of the problem. I just want to provide a solution. And I think that has fueled uh, Andrew Yang's uh, uh, campaign and in most of the polling so far, he has uh, vaulted into a lead. I don't know how uh, strong those polls are, but- Stuart, you've been involved in many, many campaigns, citywide and statewide. How much of the, do you think is just name recognition? I think it's a lot of name recognition, but the, uh, the election is in June and it's a very diverse field where you have maybe eight or 10 strong candidates running who have uh, some degree of money, uh, have been on the scene for a long time, like Scott Stringer. Scott Stringer at, at the Association for Better New York yesterday spent a lot of time attacking uh, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang attacked the teachers union. No candidate would ever attack the teachers union, except parents are very upset 
with the teachers union and they vote. So it is a um, and, and their money doesn't matter, the teachers union money, because there's enough of it for each of these candidates. Eric Adams has done very, very well and has been uh, polling well. It's uh, and and others are trying to gain that traction, uh, but it, it's an open field. But I wouldn't rule out uh, someone coming from the outside with name recognition. Uh, just think of Donald Trump uh, and what he did to all the seasoned governors and senators and and everyone else in the Republican field. So Adam Stringer and Yang. Um, are in the double digits um, uh, class, Stringer, depending on which poll you read. Just behind them are a group of single digit candidates, some of whom are better financed if, if and the same name recognition as a guy named Bill de Blasio had when he came out of nowhere to win the Democratic uh, primary. Three of them are women. So given the rekindled attention to the Me Too movement uh, as a result of these allegations against Cuomo and, and other politicians. It, is this the year of the woman? I think there's potential for that. I mean, I, I think it's just extraordinary that we're three months away from the primary and there are at least half a dozen who have a completely viable path to win, right? Notwithstanding the, the discrepancies in their poll numbers, I think with ranked choice voting, you can make a plausible argument that any of those those kind of candidates could pull ahead at the end. And so much will have to do with what current events bring to us in the next couple of months. And I think that the governor's sexual harassment, you know, brouhaha is going to be, I I believe just, I think it's reawakening a dispute and a, a kind of consciousness in the public that had been perhaps put to bed a couple of years ago when the sexual harassment laws were passed, that many of us thought, okay, we can kind of put this behind us. I think it's showing that it's not behind us in any way and that that could be a factor. I also um, think that the fact that it will, the primary will take place at the end of June, which will be the anniversary of um, George Floyd's untimely death. I think that will be another reawakening to the issues of Black Lives Matter and social justice. So I think that that will be really front of mind in the voters um, brains when they go into the voting. So I think there are some things that we can anticipate, but all of those will be the last minute issues that I think will color the, the decision making of the voters. They have so many options right now that are still out there for them. Rose, who are you, who are you hearing sort of in your network of, of political activists and insiders? Where is the smart money starting to go? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a real coalescing among the progressive left behind Maya Wiley. So I think that's definitely, I think, one of those like sort of second tier candidates to watch. Um, the question of like, is this going to be the year of the woman? Is, this issue, is the brouhaha with Andrew Cuomo going to play a big role in, in voters' decision making? I have yet to see a candidate sort of pick this up as a cornerstone of their campaign, but I, I certainly think that there is time for that to happen. 
Um, and then the other, the, for the people, my Wiley seems to be a darling of the progressive left, people who are really actively engaged. And then the other segment of the people I'm talking to are people who work outside of politics and government, but who are like, maybe civically engaged New Yorkers, generally trending towards a sort of a younger spectrum. And they're really excited about Andrew Yang. I mean, I think that it's not just name recognition. They like his idea of the borough bucks plan. He like they like the idea of sort of like cash in their pocket from city government. They're not particularly concerned about the city's financial state. They think that they can they can print the money essentially. And I, I think that Yang's got a real like a message that resonates because it's so simple. You see how it affects you immediately and you kind of know who he is. So it doesn't yeah. matter to them that he's never worked in city government before. They don't know who any of those people are anyway. Right. It's sure. interesting. His name recognition numbers are actually not that much higher than Eric Adams or Scott Stringer. And yet his rating as number one is much, much higher than either of those two candidates. So I think yeah, I think there's more to it than than just name. Well, I also think that, that Stringer and, and, and Adams are not as well known um, as you might think they were, given their their long histories in, in electoral politics. Singer, uh, Stringer, a citywide uh, official after serving locally. Adams, a uh, borough-wide official after serving locally. But I want to ask Stuart, is this the year where affinity becomes more important than geography? I mean, one of the value propositions that Stringer pitched to um, potential donors was the fact that he had represented the Upper West Side, which was the highest voting area in the city for, for so many years, uh, had a real genuine base there that he'd represented uh, Manhattan as the, as the borough president. Again, uh, the highest voting uh, part of the city. Eric Adams could point to being elected, uh, actually elected without a primary, in the most populous borough of Brooklyn and having uh, a very deep base in central Brooklyn among the Caribbean and African-American uh, communities that he had represented, served as a police officer, and now as borough president. So at the end of the day, do you think this excitement about somebody like Meyer Wiley, who's, who's, who's running a, an ideology campaign, or Andrew Yang, who's running, or at least wants to be perceived as running an ideas campaign, um, is enough to generate the votes, the people that actually come out? Or do you think that these solid bases that, that Stringer and, uh, and Adams have um, are ultimately what's going to dominate what happens on primary day? I think that organization does matter and that having a constituency matters. So having a constituency that has voted for you in the past and knows who you are and you can rely on because they are many times prime voters, such as you'll find on the Upper West Side uh, and you'll find in Brooklyn, uh, really will help. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens in a place like the Bronx, where there is no uh, uh, candidate with a, uh, with a real constituency there. And that's like an open field. But um, but uh, I, I would say it gives an advantage uh, when it comes to the voting to those candidates that have a built-in, reliable, historic constituency. So we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask each of you this question. Think about some of your clients, the people that you advocate for at City Hall. If there was one message that you could deliver to the next mayor, whoever that is, on behalf of um, 
that client or group of clients, what is the most important thing that, that you have to say to the next mayor of the city of New York? Rose? Yeah. Bring back the tourists. Bring them back. Open it up. Bring them back as safely and quickly as we can. I'm thinking about my culturals, right? I'm thinking about all of these organizations that wrap around the cultural institutions. Like, bring back the tourists. We need them. They spend the money here. We need them in the hotels. Like, let's open the floodgates as soon as people are vaccinated. How do we get them back into the five boroughs? Katie? Um, I, I like to reinvigorate the theme of New York as a city of opportunity and where people come to realize their dreams. And it's not inconsistent with Rose's, you know, bringing back the culture, bringing back the business culture, bringing and encouraging people to live their biggest and best life um, with a great education and a great job opportunity. Um, lots of housing options to serve different people. So uh, just an optimistic vision for the future of the city. Stuart? Uh, building on what both Katie and Rose said, I would say, don't get in the way of economic uh, uh, rejuvenation. Uh, we had the, uh, the bankruptcy, near bankruptcy crisis in the 70s. We had 9-11, we had Hurricane Sandy, uh, we had the financial crisis, all of which came close to destroying New York, but New York is resilient and we need to maintain that resilience and we need, and we, we have the good fortune of a Senate majority leader being from New York, uh, perhaps a future speaker being from New York, and we should take advantage of the opportunities that are created for funding a, a, um, a, a resurgence uh, of, of the city's economy. And just don't stop it as a mayor. I mentioned at the beginning that we're in a period of rapid transition, unpredictable turns in the political environment. We'll come back uh, closer to the primary and certainly after the primary to handicap uh, what this all means for the future of the city. Meantime, my thanks to Rose Chris, to Katie Schwab, to Stuart Shorenstein uh, for your insightful comments today. I'm Ken Fisher. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.